The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 364. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can also go to mclanahanacademy.com. That's the best way to support the show. You can purchase one of my courses there. I've got 12 available for purchase. Of course, you can also enroll for free, free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, you get the best deals on forthcoming courses and new courses. I will have another course out in September. So you're going to want that. September's closing out fast, right? So I will have another course out this month. And then another one in October. So you've got two more coming this year. You're going to want to get those good deals, those good coupons. You can also go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Little Classroom. Great way to support the show. You get great content as well. I teach there with Tom and a whole bunch of other great instructors. So you're going to want to do that. So you've got McClanahan Academy. You've got Learn True History. You can also click on that Shop tab on BrianMcClanahan.com. Get your Brian McClanahan Show logo and all kinds of cool stuff. It's a great way to support the show as well. All right, let's talk about the topic of the day. And always, before I do that, share this on social media, rate it wherever you get your podcasts. I always say that. I don't have to say it a million times, but I feel like I do. Make sure you get people thinking locally and acting locally. All right, let's talk about the topic of the day. We're in our Supreme Court week here. We talked about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And because this is going to be a listener-generated week, and people are excited about this. I want to give you a coupon. So if you're listening to this podcast, you're watching on YouTube, here's your coupon. I'm going to be talking about one of my classes today at McClanahan Academy. It is American Constitutions. And I'm going to give you 35% off if you use this coupon. It's RBG. I'm going to make Ruth Bader Ginsburg a coupon. So just use that three letters, RBG, get 35% off my American Constitutions class. That is a steal, and I'm doing it because you all wanted to hear this week, and I want you to buy that class because it is a great class. And in fact, what I'm going to do today is talk about a portion of the class. I'm going to do it tomorrow as well. So you get a little taste of the, some of the things I do in the class. Get that class it is about the United States Constitution. It is going to destroy all of the leftists and, in many ways, right-wing myths about the Constitution because it's not a national document. I mean, this is something that we, we have to understand. I approach it from a federal republic position. But in the last section of the course, I get into Supreme Court decisions. I talk about landmark cases, and that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to focus on two. I think the two most important cases in the 19th century, in many ways. Now, this is my opinion. But when you look at how things have developed in America since the 1860s, and even before that in the 1820s, when you look at the Marshall Court, and then you look at the post-war court, the post-bellum Supreme Court, and you talk about some of the things that really established 
what's going on in America right now, there's two cases. Two cases that do this. One was a case from 1821. One was a case from 1873. The case from 1821 is Cohen's v. Virginia, and the case from 1873 is the Slaughterhouse Cases. Now, the reason these two cases are so important is because one of the major problems we have with the Supreme Court today, or the federal court system today, is the fact that many decisions are going before the court that should not be there, and not just that, the way the court is interacting with the states. So we're going to start with Cohen's v. Virginia because this is an important decision. And in fact, the reason I wanted to talk about this is because yesterday on social media, I had a conversation with Richard Brookheiser, very brief. Brookheiser is actually a, a fairly a, a nice man. I mean, I disagree with him on just about everything when it comes to uh, the nature of the United States government. I mean, he is a Hamiltonian nationalist. Now, he's right on a lot of things when it comes to uh, some issues of you know government size and these kinds of things. I mean, he's he's okay with that, but he when you get to the Hamiltonian nationalists, they don't see that they're actually undermining their own position. He's a martial acolyte. He loves Alexander Hamilton. This is who he is. And he posted something about judicial review. And somebody had complained that you know John Marshall had created judicial review. And, and Brookhiser correctly stated that no, Marshall didn't do that. That was actually the Hilton v. United States decision, which Alexander Hamilton was involved in uh, in the 1790s. Now, the reason this case is important is because, number one, it was the first time that the Supreme Court upheld a federal court decision. The first time. Now, it did not declare one unconstitutional. It upheld the, it upheld the law in question and said it was constitutional. Now, what was the law in question? Well... It was a carriage tax. And of course, Hamilton argued in favor of the tax. Why not? It was his tax. And essentially what happened is Hamilton said, look, this is an indirect tax. It's not a direct tax. It's an indirect tax. And because it's an indirect tax, we can levy indirect taxes. And essentially what opponents saw this correctly as doing was saying that now the general government can tax just about anything. This is the beginning of Hamilton's curse, in, or at least one more uh, evidentiary support for Hamilton's curse, how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America, which I've got a class on that too when I talk about this decision in both the American Constitution's course and in the Hamilton course. And you get my book on Hamilton where I go into it there. But you've got this uh, decision now that allows, and this is before we had the decision system organized the way it is today where we have majority and minority decisions. This was just a decision. So every, every judge gave their opinion, and of course it was held to be constitutional, the tax. Now when John Marshall gets in office, we have, or gets into the bench, I should say, not office, but assumes the bench, chief justice, we have the minority and majority positions. And so we have the majority decision, and then we have the dissenting decision, usually written by one justice or another. Sometimes you have justices writing concurrent opinions or concurrent dissenting opinions, whatever the case may be. But you may only have one written opinion for the majority and one written opinion for the minority. You might have more. It's, uh, it's up to the judges. But here we have two cases. They're going to have a dramatic impact on how we interpret federal power. And this is what I mentioned yesterday with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was awful on federal power, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the states. 
And she was never, sub, uh, never objective. She was always subjective in how she looked at things. It was always about partisan politics. Now, certainly, we could say that uh, even at other times, you know, the justices had been about partisan politics. But Ginsburg was terrible with this, and she was selective in her adherence to federalism. So, but you have these two cases that really uh, did a lot to destroy federalism in America. And I want to talk about Cohen's v. Virginia first. This is 1821. This is the Marshall Court. What you had was something very interesting happening in Virginia. And, and Brookheiser and I talked about this. This is why I brought him up. I mentioned that, of course, um, he said even Spencer Rowan was against or uh, used uh, judicial review. When I said something, this is Hamilton's curse. He said even Spencer Rowan used judicial review. And I said, well, yes, that applied to Virginia only, though. This is not, and that was in Virginia. Virginia and the federal government are two different things. And the problem was not with judicial review of federal court decisions, but judicial review of state court decisions. And here we have the major rub in the process. So the, the issue, of course, is state court decisions. So what happened in 1789, the general government passes something called the Judiciary Act of 1789, which creates the federal court system. And in that, there's a Section 25, which allows for state court decisions to be appealed to the Supreme Court. Okay, to be appealed to federal courts. State court decisions to go to federal courts. So what happens is if I go to, I, I sue in state court and I get all the way to the state Supreme Court and I decide I don't like that decision there, I can go right to federal courts and go appeal to that. So I can have redress in a federal court. So the federal courts will then oversee the state courts. You see, this was the major problem with it. This is why for years, members of what was called the Richmond Junto, people like Spencer Rowan and William Brockenbrough and others, Thomas Ritchie, said that this part of the Judiciary Act was unconstitutional because it, there's nothing in the Constitution that allows the federal government to oversee decisions between citizens of the state and the state itself of the same state. Now, you've got citizens between states, citizens from one state and the state, another state. I mean, you have these things. You have, of course, uh, you know, international decisions, but not in this way. So what they did is set up a system that emasculates the states. It makes it to where state court decisions are really irrelevant at the end of the day because the Supreme Court can take them up or another federal court can take them up. So what Virginia decided to do was say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make it to where only some cases can go before a federal court. And if you're found guilty, you can't appeal to any other court, essentially. Or uh, more importantly, you can't even appeal to the state Supreme Court. Right? So if you're, confound, if you're convicted, found guilty in these particular courts, you can't even appeal. The appeal's done. You, you, you've been found guilty. That's it. The idea was, of course, to to just completely eliminate Section 25 of the Judiciary Act. So what happens is interesting. A couple of guys, a couple of brothers, the Cohen's brothers from Maryland, are selling lottery tickets from Washington, D.C. in Virginia. <laughs> so you've got two Maryland citizens selling lottery tickets that are from D.C. in Virginia. In Virginia, of course, it's illegal to sell lottery tickets at this time. So you have a real mess here. 
You have a mess because you've got two citizens from one state selling lottery tickets from this federal city in DC, from D.C. in a state where it's illegal. So, of course, they're, they're arrested for this. They are dragged before a Virginia court, and Virginia court finds them guilty and orders, orders them to pay a fine. And because of the laws of Virginia, they can't appeal in Virginia. That's it. It's blocked there. They're done. So what their lawyer ingeniously does is say, well, forget it. We're just going to go right to federal court. We're not going to go. We're not going to go through the Virginia court process. We can't. It's been blocked. We're going to go right to federal court. And guess what? The Supreme Court takes up the case, right? It takes up the case. So now you could say that, well, I mean, this is a clear case. You have the state of Virginia. You've got citizens from another state. This is their petition for redress in a different state. Uh, I mean, this is, this is a clear-cut case of the Supreme Court having jurisdiction here. But what was really at stake here was uh, the ability for the state to say, we're going to just undermine that Section 25 of the Judiciary Act. We're going to make it to where you can't have appeals from a state to the federal court system. And Marshall, in fact, found the Coens brothers guilty. I mean, he said, look, these guys are guilty. They broke the law in Virginia. They got to pay the fine. But what he did in it is say that you can't do what you're doing. You can't, you can't block appeals from a state court to a federal court. That's unconstitutional. You can't do that at all. So he upheld the conviction, but he also said you can't appeal, you can't block appeals from state courts to federal court. This changes everything because he's invalidated a state law. Now, when Marshall was arguing for the Constitution, when he was in favor of it, he actually made statements where the federal courts cannot invalidate state laws unless they clearly violated the Constitution. Well, there's no clear violation of the Constitution here. It's not clear that they're violating the Constitution. The states have control over their, over their court systems, how that works, how it doesn't work. There's no clear violation here. But he invalidates the law anyways. So what he's done is made the state courts essentially irrelevant. This is why this decision is so important. Because now if you get a traffic ticket in your hometown, you can just appeal to a federal court. That traffic ticket's unconstitutional. I'm not going to pay it. You see, we've nationalized everything. This was a nationalization process, and it's very, very dangerous. And Cohen's v. Virginia. Now, there was there was some before this that started this process. But Cohen's v. Virginia is one of these cases that's often overlooked, but very important for this particular reason. We should be paying more attention to our state judges, who's on our state bench, and our local courts, and we do. We don't even care about that. I mean, you can have a local justice race, and it's like, all right, we got like 100 people showing up for this to vote here. Nobody cares. Nobody cares at all because the state courts are really irrelevant. Now, the Supreme Court could take care of all this, and so could the federal courts by saying you don't have jurisdiction. But they don't. They don't. It's just like the issue I talked about with uh, Pennsylvania and how a federal court took up these mandates in Pens- from Pennsylvania when they shouldn't have. I mean, this is, the, this is Cohen's v. Virginia rearing its ugly head in 2020, 200 years later. This is what's happening. Now, Brookheiser's response to this as well. Marshall would say, we have a federal hydra here. Hamilton, we got a federal hydra. You can't have that. It's going to create a mess. Well, the the Confederacy operated under this system essentially for four years. They had a Supreme Court, but almost every decision was held in the states, and it didn't create a big mess. This is just Marshall being 
hyperbolic. I mean, this is Hamilton being hyperbolic. This is them just, oh my gosh, we're going to have a mess. Wouldn't have happened. Wouldn't have happened. Because you still have the federal courts to deal with federal issues. And even Patrick Henry argued in Virginia, well, I hope we got a system where we can have federal laws declared unconstitutional. I hope that's there. And he hoped it was the courts. Now, I mean, when you look at Madison and Jefferson and the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions, what happens when they declare something constitutional when you know it's clearly not? Well, then the states have to get involved. But if you follow all the process, due process, follow all the way through, and the decision is correct, well, then you've done, the courts have done their job. It's when they don't do their job that you have to go into some other method, which would be nullification or interposition. Somebody asked me what happens in Pennsylvania. Well, you get counties that just say, forget it. We're not going to follow your rules. Are you going to send in the state troopers and arrest us all? This is what happened in Virginia many times. The state would say, you're going to do this, and the counties would ignore it. There is nullification from lower down, bottom up. I mean, I've mentioned this before. This is how you do it. The other case, of course, that's so important is 1873 slaughterhouse cases. This is a five to four decision, a very important five to four decision that essentially narrowly interpreted the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Now, if you look at Ginsburg and what she done, what she's done, and what many federal judges do, they they interpret that 14th Amendment to basically cover everything, right? And what they've done is incorporate the Bill of Rights. They've applied the Bill of Rights to the states, which at the time in 1873, the Supreme Court correctly said the Bill of Rights did not apply to the states. That wasn't the intent of the 14th Amendment. Now, Raoul Berger has done a great job showing this is the case in his book, Government by Judiciary. There were some proponents of the 14th Amendment. Now, this has been a pretty hotly contested issue now recently because there have been a few books that have come out where uh, the argument is that they did intend the 14th Amendment to uh, incorporate the Bill of Rights. There were certainly proponents of the 14th Amendment that did. You know, John Bingham is the guy that wrote it. And there's some things that he said that you might get the impression that he wanted this to incorporate the Bill of Rights and to apply the Bill of Rights against the states. But then there were others who supported it that said, no, that's, that's not what's going to happen. So... Which one do you believe? We know that when the amendment was actually voted on, the, the position was this did not incorporate the Bill of Rights. And you see, one, one Republican actually stood up and said, you know what, the Bill of Rights are already incorporated because of the Supremacy Clause. <laughs> and one of his colleagues stood up and said, um, yeah, uh, you know that case, that John Marshall case, Barron v. Baltimore? Yeah, um, that kind of refuted exactly what you're saying. You see, even John Marshall realized the Bill of Rights were not incorporated against the states. And did the 14th Amendment do that is the big question. Well, the Supreme Court in 1873 in a 5-4 to decision said no. The Bill of Rights do not apply to the states. They apply to the general government only. Basically what it is said that there's state citizenship and there's federal citizenship. Now, the important thing about this case, and of course, you know, when you bring this up and you bring up this position, I mean, the, the, the progressives go mad because of Hugo Black. And again, I've got Hugo Black in my American Constitution's course, get 35% off RBG or my Hamilton class or my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America book. I've got him in that too. So Hugo Black created incorporation in many ways out of thin air in uh, the 20th century. But when you look at the slaughterhouse cases, you look at the five judges that 
argued that the Bill of Rights did not apply to the states. Four of the five were Republican-appointed judges, two by Lincoln, two by Grant. The fifth was a judge appointed by James Buchanan, who was from New Hampshire, who so happened to be a Unionist during the war. I mean, he supported vigorous prosecution of the war. He, uh, he was a little critical of the way that Lincoln handled it in terms of declaration of war. In fact, he said that yeah, there should have been a declaration of war. But otherwise, he wanted the United States to win. Now, it's often said, well, this vote, he's a doe face. He's a northern man of southern principles. He's a racist. I would, I mean, look, the guy, all the other people on the Supreme Court, you could argue all these things too. Not, of course, supporting the South or Southern positions, but they held racial views that are not in line with our racial views of today. Even the four Republicans who voted with the one Democrat to uh, support the position, the majority, which was written by a Lincoln appointee, by the way, uh, Justice Miller, in these slaughterhouse cases. So this particular case is important because what it did was say the Bill of Rights did not apply to the states. Now, that decision was then ignored when we get to the 20th century. And I say this is important because that's how, they were correct. But what happened over time in the 20th century is that we started selectively incorporating the Bill of Rights. It started with the First Amendment, and it's gone down the line. You look at it with things like the Eighth Amendment. The Second Amendment was recently incorporated. This is where I, I caution conservatives who are Second Amendment people Go to your state constitution first, because if you start relying on the central government to do this stuff, you're going to be sorely disappointed in the future because they will work against you. So, you know, the Second Amendment's been incorporated, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment. I mean, all these amendments have been incorporated against the states. They've been, the Bill of Rights has been applied to the states, okay? Uh but the slaughterhouse cases were trying to block that. There was one attempt to try to block that, which is why I say it's an important case. Because if we're looking at precedent, I mean, if we're going to follow the Supreme Court. Well, this is an important decision. Now, again, later on, you get the decisions of Hugo Black and a whole host of other judges who think that the Bill of Rights applies to the states. Ginsburg believed the Bill of Rights applied to the states because of incorporation, the Equal Protection Clause. Except they're all wrong. The Supreme Court clearly said this in 1873. All that is bunk. The 14th Amendment was never designed to apply to the states. And so when you look at the decision that was made in, you know, with this federal judge of Pennsylvania, you look and use the 14th Amendment, this is where it becomes dangerous. We need to be looking at the Slaughterhouse case as evidence of, no, 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 these people were, these people were Republicans from the time, 1873. The ink had only been dry on the 14th Amendment for about five years. And already they know what was said. They knew what was going on. They knew how it was going to be interpreted. If it was an amendment that was an incorporation amendment or other things, I mean, look, the, United, the school systems in Washington, D.C. were still segregated after the 14th Amendment was passed. Because they understood that, you know, this didn't apply the way, I mean, that's a bad thing, right? I mean, I'm not arguing for that. But the, the point is that this thing didn't apply the way people think it does. But we've used it now in a way that was not intended by the ratifiers of the amendment. And clearly the Supreme Court thought the same thing.
So these two cases, I mean, people have asked about landmark cases. I would say these two are two of the most important landmark cases. When you get further on, as you start talking about Hugo Black and you start looking at 20th century cases, I mean, we can find all kinds of things to talk about, but I don't want to steal all my thunder because I want you to use that RBG coupon and I want you to go out and get my class and talk where I talk about in the last part of the class all the different things that go on with the federal court system uh, in the 200-plus year history of that particular institution, that particular part of the general government, and how it has, in many ways, completely destroyed originalism. Now, what I'm going to do in the next episode of the Brian McClanahan Show, just setting this up, I'm going to talk about originalism. I'm going to talk about what that means. I'm going to talk about how, again, with the Constitution, what this means for the court. We'll get into this and how the Supreme Court today is so far from that, even if they say they're originalists, usually they're not, that we have a major crisis, legal crisis in America, but we've got government by judiciary, as Raul Berger pointed out. This is the major problem we have with the U.S. Constitution. We don't have a legislature anymore. We have a legislature that passes laws hoping that the judicial branch will uphold those laws. So we've got government by the judicial branch. I mean, this is what we have. A extra legal legislative branch of nine people who are not democratically elected, but yet the left points to we gotta have more democracy. So let's put our hand let's put all of our <laughs> eggs in the basket of the Supreme Court who aren't democratically elected. How stupid is their actual position. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time. See you then. (laughs) 